business of culture, the culture of business, entrepreneurs, policymakers, authors, rock stars, media moguls. <laughs> Full disclosure, we are live at the University of Richmond with MSNBC president Rashida Jones. I may, you know, we may be sitting here in 10, 20 years and there's some technology that I had no idea could exist. What I can control is ensuring that we've got a brand and content that continues to deliver for the audience and be prepared to evolve as the world evolves. A proud product of the RVA, our guest will take us into her 20-year road to becoming the first black executive to lead a major TV news network. We'll discuss the state of the industry, the quality of so much information spooling by the second, her strategy for the era of cord cutting, so much more. But first, welcome back. <laughs> Your dreams were your ticket out. You stay with us. This special taping of Full Disclosure Live was made possible by the generous support of the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. The Robbins School prepares students to make an impact by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And by Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts, the link. Please subscribe and call your girlfriend is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. We got some big honking live shows coming up. Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete Buttigieg in less than one month at the Maudlin, our big show at Maudlin on December 1st. Tickets will be available, I think, within 24 hours. We're trying to rebook Steve Inskeep. He was sent to the Middle East and we have to postpone that show. So look for the end of January. Many more honking, fascinating audiovisual experiments in the spring, so do follow on all socials at handle Full D Radio. Joining us on stage live at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business is MSNBC president and mostly RVA raised <laughs> Rashida Jones. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The cool thing to see is the front row here. For anybody listening in posterity, right? <laughs> Richard and Alice Atkins are here, her parents. Her <laughs> high school principal, her doting principal, Principal McQueen Williams is here. So many people from Hampton who are proud in that you somehow traversed in less than 20 years. And I gotta say I'm envious because I'm 25 years after graduation <laughs> and I don't have it figured out. I have so many questions for you and so much to cram into less than an hour, but I gotta start. Where were you the morning of? When we all woke up, I guess Saturday morning, you must have got a call much earlier than that about the world suddenly coming apart at the seams. Nobody had predicted that right. a Gaza flare up and the, I guess, brinksmanship of World War III. Before that was everybody watching the Trump hearings, the shenanigans in the House Speaker battle. Walk me through this. How did it work? Sure. So, I mean, it's kind of the nature of breaking news. You never know when it's going to happen. You never know where you're going to be um, when it happens. And so you just kind of always have to be ready. So I was equipped with my laptop and my iPad and my two phones and all my devices um, anywhere I travel. My husband and I were actually visiting my stepson, who's a student at Georgia State. And we were we were down there just for, you know, a, a visit and the world turned upside down pretty quickly. And so in those moments, a hotel room turns into a newsroom. 
you know, the team, you know, alerted everyone and we, we hopped on and we started just driving. Cars. What time was it when that happened? Was it waking 5 you up? 5 p.m., maybe 5, 5 a.m., maybe a little earlier than that. And, you know, again, it's kind of what we're all used to, the nature of breaking news. It could happen anywhere in any moment. So this is the thing I don't understand is MSNBC back. If I were to go with my first experience with MSNBC, let's say 20 years ago, it's now 27 years old. It was yes. founded in 96. And back then it was kind of backwatery in Secaucus, New Jersey. Yes. It was co-founded by Microsoft. Correct. In the golden age of cable TV. Mm -hmm. But never the twain should meet. You really wouldn't see cross-pollination between NBC News and MSNBC. And something changed over the past decade or you know, 12 years. A lot of it became much more 30 Rock centric. You started seeing the likes of Andrea Mitchell or Chuck Todd and people having shows realizing that table stakes now are not just, can't just do meet the press or show up once a week. You have to be available multi-platform. Right. And you came in, uh, I think your hiring was announced late 2020? Correct, yeah, I took over as president, announced at the end of 2020 and uh, took the lead in, in the beginning of 21. And some of that comes from just the necessity of um, kind of the evolution of the brands. And, and once we were co-located, you know, years ago um, at 30 Rock, it was the opportunity if you could make one plus one equal three. And so why send two different teams to cover one story where we can send one team or one and a half team to cover a lot of places? And the other piece of that is just the, the evolution of how people consume. In a world where you're creating content for a cable network, a broadcast network, a streaming network, social media platforms, fill in the blank, you have to find opportunities to make that content go in more places. And so I think when those two things came together and we figured out how to create efficiencies with not just NBC News and, C and MSNBC, but there's also CNBC, now our local affiliates in Telemundo, what we've tried to do is find ways to take all of these entities who bring their own expertise to certain stories and how do we elevate and make one plus one equal five? When I first interfaced with the brand, it was owned by General Electric which then sold it in pieces to Comcast. Right. Comcast, Cable Town, the biggest cable company in the country. And MSNBC, like CNN and others, is table stakes for the cable dial. You can't really, you know, have cable without MSNBC. And that's been mother's I, I milk. I love that you said that. Right. <laughs> no, Let's underline that. <laughs> so here's the deal. That's revenue, the affiliate fees and the fees that everybody pays. Like, if you could take your $150 a month cable bill, however many dollars are going, ESPN takes a chunk. But... MSNBC and others, and that's vital for news right. gathering. But a lot of that, as you know, over the last 10 years has been cracked open by cord cutting, especially right. if you talk to younger people. You have younger children who are digital natives, who right. know Wi-Fi and know their cell phone connection, but really don't want to grow up in a world where they send $150 to the cable company. I, I, they don't even think that way. You know, my niece is here. If I were to ask her what channel is MSNBC, I don't think she could tell me. <laughs> but she knows how to get to the content because we're not just a cable channel. That's a big part of our business. It's an important part of our business. But there's also, you know, part of what we've tried to do is take a brand that has a connection with the audience that's credible. And how do we take that content to where people are consuming? So in a world where I think it's unlikely that more people are going to decide to become new cable subscribers, we have to make sure we're taking this content to the places where they're consuming. That might be original content on TikTok. That might be original content on Twitter or X. That might be taking the best of what we do in creating original videos that we can put on YouTube. But you wouldn't be able to do that unless you had the core business, the core, the core component of our brand, which is the channel. So how are you still paying the bills? I know it gets into inside baseball and you've gotten this kind of this MBA, this education through grit, through going through various news affiliates in the country, being at the Weather Channel, learning kind of real yeah. time. Let's go back. 
Had I told you in 2002, when you'd graduated from Hampton, that we'd Ooh. be streaming seamlessly Spotify in the car, you'd have this little box on top of your TV that would give you all these other channels, and Wi-Fi was just Wi-Fi, and content was smashed and beats. Yeah. Uh, we had a President Trump and a pandemic. There was a lot of stuff to cram. There was a lot of that, yes, 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 yes. I mean, I remember buying my first cell phone, and it was a flip phone, and I remember being in the parking lot of the mall calling my mom saying, you are not gonna believe this. I'm outside in a parking lot calling you right now. That was mind blowing to me. And, and so no, there would be no way to forecast how much we would have evolved, how much technology would have evolved, how much the news cycle would have evolved. And, and I think, you know, that's kind of the name of the game. It's, it's an example of the businesses that survived. You know, I, I know when I was in school at least, we all learned the case study of Kodak. Yeah. And they did not evolve their business. They didn't change their business. We're sitting in, in, you know, in a business school right now and we know what happened to Kodak. We know what happened to Blockbuster. And so I think the lesson there as a business leader is, you know, you don't want to compromise the integrity of the content, but we can get creative and try to look around corners to see how can we evolve how we're distributing that content. And I think that's kind of for us the name of the game. I may, you know, we may be sitting here in 10, 20 years and there's some technology that I had no idea could exist. There, there are, you know, waves in the air and it's transmitting it across the world. Like I, I, my brain doesn't even go that far to think about what's possible, but what I can control is ensuring that we've got a brand and content that continues to deliver for the audience and be prepared to evolve as the world evolves. So how does it work, the interfacing between MSNBC and NBC News and something like an NBC News Now, yeah. the streaming native and other things like CNBC is running other things at night. But so there's an NBC News chief and then there's a call every morning. How do you guys split resources, scramble the jets? There's linear, of course. Yeah. So we partner very well because we all do things very differently. You know, I run a brand that includes a 24 hour network. NBC News has components of broadcast content, digital content and streaming content. And so we all, we all do different things. And so, you know, the idea is we want to partner on how we distribute resources. And some of that is the collaboration across the brands, again, to ensure we don't all show up at one place where we could have sent one person to distribute for everyone versus sending three, four or five people. And so there's a lot of that kind of hand to hand, minute by minute collaboration on the resources. But then we all take it back to our own brand proposition. You know, the brand proposition of MSNBC is going to be different from Meet the Press, for example, or today's show. And because we're very clear about what we all offer the audience, that allows for an opportunity for us to share in areas where it makes sense, but also to maintain our own distinct um, identities. But you take a brand like Meet the Press, which used to be Sunday morning appointment network, yeah. bagel and coffee, you know, block off several hours and watch. And that, as something happened over the last 10 years where there was a component you'd see on streaming or Meet the Press daily on MSNBC, yeah. you know? No, I, and I think that's an example. You know, I'm extremely proud of what my colleagues at Meet the Press have created out of what used to be a one day a week product. Now, you know, they're in the audio space, they're in the streaming space, they're in the broadcast space. You know, they're, they have a film component. There's so many things you can do with a brand that's that trusted. And I think that's the point. When you have a brand that has credibility, that has equity with the audience, that has just that personal connection and history with the audience, the sky's the limit of where you can take it. And remind me, so the, the mother app, at NBC Universal is Peacock, right? And so there's an MSNBC tile or is it an NBC News tile? We all have tiles. There's tiles, there's a tile for everyone. And so if you click the MSNBC tile, you'll get things like a simulcast of Morning Joe or last night's airing of Chris Hayes' show or clips from different shows. And so the idea of Peacock is if you think about NBC Universal overall, it's a one-stop shop to not only get original content, but content from 
from all of the brands that are represented by NBC Universe. But there's no option to stream MSNBC Linear Live from Peacock. Not on Peacock. You can use TV Everywhere, not to get too technical, but if you have TV Everywhere, you can stream it on msnbc.com or other platforms. And that's a little bit different um, in the cable space. In the cable space, this is a product that if you are a cable subscriber, you have to pay for. So we're also very thoughtful about what we're able to offer our audience um, in a paid environment. Rashida, we are nearly a month into this, what followed the massacre in Israel, just an unprecedented loss of life, right. rapid fire, you know, retaliation in Gaza. A lot of consternation across the Middle East, across college campuses in the United States. A lot of criticism over anybody trying to cover the news and that you cannot hope to in any way be both sides enough, that you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. What playbook are you, you referring to for this? Or what's your true north in terms of you wake up in the morning, I know whatever headline comes out today, if I stick by this standard or this mix, I'm going to be all right. I think for us, the biggest filter is the journalism. It's letting the story guide where we go and how we cover it. You know, our, our objective as journalists is to be fair, is to bring truth to light. There are stories where that can be more complicated. I think this is this is one of those stories, but it's something we're thinking about every single day, you know, between our leadership, our standards team. Our, our employees, we're having these conversations daily as the story evolves. We want to make sure, above all, we're getting the journalism right. You pride yourself on having uh, talent that's really uh, truly multi-chromatic across the spectrum. Uh, Asian American talent, first black primetime host, Muslim Americans, Jewish Americans, atheists, agnostics, whatnot. Very prominent, you know, torchbearer uh, for LGBT stuff. It's like a star on Monday night. But yet you'll get criticized in tabloids and other places for maybe leading in one perspective too much. How do you or do you even process that? I mean, you know, I think it's easy to listen to what other people think or um, how people perceive decision making or, or, or what have you. And I'll just go back to my last point. The North Star has to be the truth. The North Star has to be fairness. The North Star has to be the journalism. And and when when that is your focus and that's your ethos, none of the other perspectives um, really come into play. I got to ask you also, this was a, uh, an Ennis Horribilis for CNN this year with what happened with the former head of CNN and it being in the news that it also was table stakes for the cable dial back in the day, but it's had uh, much more volatility in terms of the parent company. For a long time, it was owned by Time Warner, sister was HBO and these other assets, TBS, and then AT&T took a crack at it and it didn't work. And then AT&T sold it off to, I guess, Discovery Communications and you know, they taught the pimple popper networks and, and channels and, and whatnot. And that was a very difficult year in terms of they kind of lost their moorings after uh, what kind of combination of editorializing and news gathering do you do in the post-Trump period? There were various scandals and everything, but I can't imagine that there's much celebrating at a time that cord cutting is just frustrating everybody. Yeah, I mean, for us, we can control what we can control. We can collectively control the brand, the value proposition that we give to our audience. We recognize the business is changing. We recognize um, the world is changing. And, and again, I think when you're building that relationship with the audience, that's what gives you future sustainability. If, you know, if, if people are, are watching the news on their watches in five years, which is too small right now, but who knows? If they're going to be watch consumers, they're gonna watch on my platform. If you're watching on the front of your shoe, if that's where news is consumed, in 20 years, it better be MSNBC. And so so the work that we're doing right now is to continue to future-proof ourselves so we are the trusted opportunity and the trusted brand for our audiences. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure on Robin Farzad. Our guest is Rashida Jones, president of MSNBC. She joins us 
live at the University of Richmond's Robin School Business, a homecoming of sorts for Rashida Jones, who uh, only moved to Richmond, I think, 30 years ago, a very different world. <sighs> that was quite the dating. <laughs> You're younger than I am, and so I say it out of envious love, but I want to ask you about uh, personalities and fragmentation. Someone like a Rachel Maddow is a real rock star. When I was first working with her, she was on some, Al Gore funded some liberal radio network or something, and Rachel Maddow emerged from this kind of, you know, financial crisis, you know, post-lapsarian environment to become a true star of the news. And I used to see her when I worked on Sixth Ave. She's very incognito, would be in her hoodie, just walking to and from the subway. Yeah. And she put so much preparation into what was a nightly show, and it just soared in the ratings and catapulted MSNBC really for the first time in a long time. But there's only so much Rachel Maddow. In fact, she had to pull back and think about book stuff and podcast stuff and talk about that, that you have some personalities that are so strong that you have to hang on to them and you have to give them their leash. They're also personal brands. And we've seen people come and go and go straight to YouTube and do other things. Well, what I think is interesting about Rachel, and we've had a number of people who have found this sweet spot, is we work in an environment where one person can appear in five, six, seven different places in different formats. And so one of the things that Rachel has been able to innovate is this idea of there's life beyond just a five-day-a-week show. And, you know, for super interesting, smart people like a Rachel, the old path was you do a show every night, you stir and repeat, and that's a five-night-a-week gig, and, and that's kind of the end of that. What Rachel's been able to innovate is this idea that you can take the core of the brand, Rachel, and her brain and turn that into a television show, into uh, documentary style programming, scripted programming, podcasts, books, and anything that she comes up with and that we come up with collectively and create a, an ecosystem around her. And, and what's unique about us is we are in a company where you can do all of those things in-house. And so you know, Rachel is is still a big part of our programming. She's also a big part of our big night, you know, big night coverage. She does the show Monday nights. She'll do, you know, big evenings like debate nights and election nights and whatever. But you actually get a lot more of, of what she has to offer. And, and I think she gets to exercise different parts of her brain and because she gets to bring all that content in different places. And I, and I think that's something that's unique to our company because you can't necessarily check all of those boxes in a lot of other places. What is the magic, the secret sauce of a Steve Kornacki? I was calling this 12 years ago. You've seen Leslie Jones say, bring out that calculator. Yes, and stuff. we there's have. Something, there's something about him. And I bother Brian Chung and other people about yeah. it. Like you're like the, you know, the econ Steve Kornack. The guy, I don't think, what is, can you tell us what his wardrobe budget is? It's like $40. <laughs> That's he where, he changes his tie though. But he it's very JCPenney. Somebody's got to sponsor it. So you know what's interesting about Steve is that's just him. Like it's not an act. It's, and that's what it's, it's not a thing that you is. turn on and yeah. turn off. If you were to go into his office right now, he's probably doing a version of what you see him doing on television. There's just no one there. Like he just is genuinely curious, genuinely interested, genuinely interesting. He doesn't see it as like performance. He sees it as a public service. And I think that's why people gravitate towards him because he's not trying to get your love and attention. You just love and give him your attention because he's so interested. But it's on brand. It's like if you talk to the gen, whatever is past millennials, they love going to Costco and buying the Kirk brand <laughs> flip-flops and sweater now and saying, I don't, I'm more about the looks. If you care about, in fact, Leslie called us. Yeah, I don't want to see you wearing a three-piece yeah. suit, Steve. I want to see you in those khakis and, you know, the rolling up the sleeves. There's something really endearing about that. And to yeah. see him on election night knows so much about you know, Charlotte Mecklenburg and other things. Yes. 
and, and, the, and the districts there and how early they typically turn in their vote and who counts the vote and what is the process of getting the vote from the precinct to the county. I mean, he knows, and it's all up here. Like, you know, he's got a very small team and he's got data and, and research and it's all in the big board, but he knows those dynamics to where he can tell you what to expect well before it happens, not outcome, but how the mechanics of individual precincts and, and counties work. And it's also what, what helps us to prepare for a big night. Now, he's also very good about kind of seeing trends and pivoting in real time, but he's so in tune with the content and the data that he's just, he's an invaluable partner and invaluable tool. Talk to me more broadly about, I don't say managing the decline, but we don't know exactly, again, getting into the trenches, how to make money on this. I think to my impression, is at least in newspaper and magazine journalism, the idea is get bought by a billionaire or someone who can absorb the losses. Yeah. And it's worked to a certain extent, but the Washington Post and its transition to digital has been really vexing, even though it's owned by Jeff Bezos, who's on and off the wealthiest person in the world. The New York Times seems to have figured out the transition to digital to the point that I guess as Steve Kornacki theoretically on election night is competing with their election dial, yeah. that you are almost at this point, I don't think the Times in their earnings release cares that much if print advertising falls because it's a mind share brand, like it's guarded. That login is there with your Netflix and with others. At what point do we see news gathering, cable news gathering broadly writ large, people step up and pay for it? that it's not necessarily bundled with anything. Sure, I mean, I, I, I think it's hard to predict when and how that will play out. I think, you know, one of the things that we, we're all looking at, I, I think across the industry is diversification. How do we diversify not only how people are consuming our content, but diversify from where the revenue is coming. And so some of that is, again, I'm gonna go back to the original point of when you have a strong brand that's credible and that people are connected to, they're willing to pay for, for uh, content. They're willing to invest in you. That goes everywhere from investing time to investing resources and money. And so I think as we're, we're trying to chart how the business is changing, A, we have to maintain just that core value of, of what we offer, but we also have to be diverse in, in how we're creating that revenue. And, and some, of the, some of that is, you know, whether it's paying for the content itself, which again, in the cable world you're paying for, but that is a business that continues to have challenges. Where else and how else are you willing to pay for it? And then there are things that have nothing to do with just paying for that core product, but you're paying for a connection to the brand. Is there a unique experience for a consumer that you're willing to pay for that's not necessarily just the fee that, that you can get in five different places. And I think that's what we're all trying to figure out right now. Where are those levers? What is the audience willing to pay for? But you can't do that unless you have a very strong brand like an MSNBC. And adjacently, how do we get our heads around YouTube? I mean, I think uh, Google paid a song for this, a pittance, two and a half billion dollars back in 2006, but it's now morphed into some media analysts call it the biggest channel. Yeah in the world. It's kind of the Amazon of channels. A lot of stuff is posted there. A lot of your guests who come on ask for the video clips to upload to their YouTube right. channels. Some people, you know, some of the best tech reviewers in the world, Marques Brownlee, his YouTube channel or others and Rogan and others are just monetizing machines. And if you step back, the parent company, Google can afford to take huge losses on that. So does that, I mean, with your parent, Comcast, Xfinity, Cable Town, does that kind of keep you up in terms of absorbing losses and sustaining through the disruption of innovation? I mean, again, because we're a part of a big organization like Comcast, Comcast does a lot of things. NBC Universal does a lot of things. So when you think about the portfolio, 
We're in the parks business. We're in the movie business. We're in the TV business. We're in the entertainment business. We're in the news business. We're in the sports business. And so it allows us a little bit more flexibility to, to face some of those headwinds. As an individual business, part of, part of what I look at is where should our content exist as people are gravitating towards certain platforms? YouTube is a huge platform for us. Well, if you look at cable networks, we are head and shoulders above the others in, in the way of YouTube consumption. And so that gets the wheels turning and thinking about if people are consuming our core content on YouTube, what original content does, does that create opportunity for? How do we continue to build that engagement? How do you continue to play to the algorithms of YouTube? So, you know, this brought you in the door, but these five clips will keep you there. And that's something we've been really focused on as well. And then just a coda on this, Twitter. Twitter has seen a lot of disruption. I mean, you saw an NPR report recently that in the several months since they left after being called state-run media, they didn't really see a disruption to their traffic. It's yeah. a really peculiar thing that happened with the world's richest person buying it and changing it by decree. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I think most people would agree it's volatile right now. And, and But I think it's also why you can't put all of your eggs in one social media basket. There was a period where any one of these platforms was going to be the end all and be all until it wasn't. And so, again, for us, it's all about diversification. Quick note on uh, bad information and just the tons of it coming out. I mean, yeah. I'm an Iranian American. I got relatives all around the world who post stuff on WhatsApp and believe it. Yep. And just because it's on WhatsApp. And Ben Collins, one of your reporters, has been very good. Kind of, his, He's even been in the firing line of, of trolls who say you're calling out bad information. We saw what it could do to an election in 2016 when they're bad apples and players trolling and gaslighting the system. What kind of safeguards and quality assurance things do you guys have to put in? Is there like a panel, an in-house kind of misinformation team? We have several reporters dedicated to misinformation. And then so it's it's the big picture, the evolution of, of bad information. And then there's the day-to-day -day stuff. So, you know, video, for example, videos can come into our building. And, and the way technology is now, you have no idea what's real, what's not. Things can be manipulated. Things can be tweaked. And so we have people who have the skill set expertise to look at not only where did it come, look at the pixels, what's in the background. We've seen this image loop in a weird way. Like they're, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's kind of become its own beat of trying to detect the real from the deep fakes and, and, and detect that. And that goes with information, that goes with video, it goes with sources, with, with actual people. And so it's become a bigger part of our business out of necessity because, you know, I, I, I'll go back to that point of, of trust and credibility with the audience. The moment you screw that up, that hits the credibility of your entire brand. And so it's something we take very seriously across the news group. We've got teams and systems in place to not only ensure that what we're presenting to the audience is fair and accurate, but we also want to make sure in a world where there's so much disinformation out there, we remain the place to come where you know the content, the information we're giving you is accurate. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. We run on NPR member station Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news source. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. Oh, a shout out out west to KPPQ in Ventura. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs, of course, are always open. And this show is going to be the first of a HD doc series here at the University of Richmond and in other places. So look out for it on YouTube and elsewhere and on all of our socials at handle Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, I'm joined live on stage by MSNBC President Rashida Jones at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, a homecoming of sorts for a 
let's say majority RVA product. I know you give props to York PA. That's where I was and born. The peppermint patty and you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start and I have your family here and I have your high school principal here. And I, I mean- She asked me to stop saying that because it, it dates her, so. <laughs> I loved seeing, I loved seeing, she met you outside of the green room, just the, the happiness. You know, I told the current principal when I was at a Henrico High open house that we're bringing Rashido back, there's just so much pride because you pulled this off in less than 20 years. And I just gotta, I have to, you know, ask, stepping back from it, what was that moment? This is a through line for all NPR things. What was the moment where you as a kid kind of knew that you could? Right, and it was just a matter at this point of hard work and diligence and luck. Was it a person? Was it a revelation? Was it a moment? I don't think there was any one moment that I kind of turned a page and said I could. I, I think it was my parents. Like we were always taught, it was not even can you. It's like why can't you? What do you mean you can't? Oh, there's a such thing as straight A's. You can't get straight A's. Please explain to me why you can't. Like. It wasn't a question of of not striving for excellence, and we were always raised that way. And and in a I don't want to say like a matter of fact way. You know, it's not like there was like unfair pressure or undue pressure. It just was like you guys are as capable as anyone else, and so why not strive for excellence? And so it kind of started from the very beginning, and and so there was no question of trying to do things. Now at that time, you know, when I when I um, lived here, did I think necessarily that I would be in this chair? You know, I I didn't necessarily dream that big, but it's because I didn't know to dream that big, but I knew that there was always going to be opportunity. And I, and I especially knew that there's opportunity if you work hard, if you apply yourself, if you're diligent, if you put your head down, but also go after what your dreams are. It is a wild card question for you. What was it like in the control room, wherever you are to see the Confederate monuments in Richmond come down? So that was nobody, everybody in this town was saying, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Right. Charlottesville is Charlottesville, but it all happened in 2020 was such a historic year and so much dislocation and strife and heartbreak. And that just all happened very rapidly. And the only one standing is Arthur Ashe. Yeah. So so what was interesting is being in New York, watching the monuments come down here in Richmond and the flag come off of the capital of Columbia, South Carolina, where I also lived. It was in a, in a strange way. It reminded me of my my own path and trajectory and the idea that you rode past those monuments every day. And it, when, you know, when, when I lived here, it was, they just were. And you never thought that they wouldn't ever be just there. And it, it was almost like a marker of change. You know, one of, one of my friends is, was actually, runs the company that actually physically took them yeah, down. That took Henry. the selfie. Yeah, he took the selfie. And, the historic um, picture. Devon, and it's just like, it, it was just full circle in a lot of ways. And and also, I think for me, and, and I often talk about this, like having teams with a, a, a diversity of a lot of perspectives and background and geography, sitting in a control room in New York City, having lived here, I was able to add a different context and perspective to that than someone from, from another location. And so it also in some ways made me proud of the diversity of my background and the fact that I could pull upon all aspects of my life as this world was changing. I see Principal McQueen Williams doting on you. You were editor of the high school newspaper and the yearbook at Henrico High yeah, School. I was busy. Okay, where did that where did that come? I mean, I'm thinking back to high school and my guidance counselor didn't want to deal with me in the 10th grade. Like, get out of this office. <laughs> See me senior year. That was you you spaz. Um and it's it's a very hard time. We got the hormones raging, you worry about the car. Um I don't know what the scene in Henry There was no car. Was back <laughs> there was no, no car. car. <laughs> 
take me back to that and you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna set my sights on it. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer and I didn't know what that- And why? Why did you want to be a writer? I liked telling stories. I liked talking to people. I also had this weird thing in me and, and maybe it's because I was the oldest of three. Like I, I kind of liked telling people what to do. <laughs> I did like that a little bit. And so this idea, like I, I almost consider my job now the combination of the two things that I spent the most time doing in high school. I was the president of the student government and I was the editor of the newspaper. And if you put those jobs together, it's the president of MSNBC. <laughs> that's, basically, that's basically what I do now. And so I, some of it was like finding ways to piece it together, right? And so I like this idea of storytelling, but I thought it was I, I thought it was going to be an English teacher because oh the my. person who I knew who wrote the most was my English teacher. Then she got me into into the paper because she was also the sponsor for the newspaper. So I started doing that. I was a print major actually when I started at Hampton because I didn't know about television. And pretty quickly when I learned about television, this is within the first few weeks of of, of class at Hampton, and I realized that there was a role where you could tell stories, you could set the agenda. As a leader, you were also deciding the stories and working with teams to help put those stories together. And there was an immediacy of television that was called broadcast. I was like, sign me up for that. And so I've basically, again, been able to take all of the things that I was passionate about in life growing up and turn that into a career. Were you an honor student and a very hardworking? <laughs> I would say, yes, I was. And how, I want to know, how did you choose Hampton yeah. and the HBCU route? Because from everything I've gathered, between York and Richmond, you were not at historically black public colleges. No, I, I, um, I really didn't know a lot about HBCUs. I knew, you know, I was, I was a, a good student. I was an honor student. Um, I knew I wanted to go a little bit away, but not too far away. And it was, I was introduced to Hampton. Actually, I was in this program through the YMCA called the Black Achievers Program. And we did a college tour and we went to Hampton, a and Bennett, NC Central, and maybe a couple of other schools. And I basically took those schools and said, at least I've seen these campuses. Let me apply to all of them and pick from there. And there was just something different about Hampton. I think it was the historic nature of it. I didn't know this until I got there. But one of the things that I've gotten out of the school is just this, this like forever life connection. It was it built upon this kind of standard of excellence that we were raised with. And it just, it just felt like the right place to be. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Tell me about you at age 17 and uh, Barbara Sierra. Yeah. So Barbara, Barbara started as a classmate. She is a retiring anchor now at WTKR in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, she, she'd been there for a very long time. She went back to school to finish her degree because she left school early to work in television. And she had few classes to take. Her last class wound up being one of my first classes. I met her in class. Um, I had to find out, like, who is this sophisticated woman wearing all this makeup? I realized it was TV makeup. <laughs> and just, she speaks so well. She's got so much presence. And I kind of latched onto her. And it, as you could imagine, you know, a group of 17 years aren't a ton latching onto, you know, someone who's like twice their age. But she took me under her wing. I crawled under that wing. And she's been my mentor since I was 17 years old. She started as a classmate. She came back as a professor at Hampton. She helped me get my first job interview that turned into my first television job. And she's someone I talk to on a regular basis even today. I really want to get into the heart of that conversation because you had to have, you, yes, this is this True North mission. I need to document this for history. But you also had to have an inchoate faith that this is going to work as a career. 
You you have to. And I, look, I remember early in my television career, um, work you know producing a newscast every night and then having a second a part time job at the mall. I remember during my my internship period, and, and my mom might remember this. I was interning in New York. Um, we were not New York resource. New York is very expensive. And I remember my mom coming up to visit and she's like, how are you doing this? But it was because they were helping. They were, they were aiding me. And it was, even if it was, you know, two buses and a train for an hour and a half to get to work and the same coming back, I wanted the experience and I wanted this career. And so, so my point there is- With Barbara or somebody else saying, stick with it, keep the faith. Along the way, many people. And, and, and I think that's what it is. You've got to have the conviction. This is hard, hard work. You can only do it if you truly feel the passion. You can't sustain it for, for years unless you have the passion. So you've got to have the passion. Then you've got to have that group of people who are pushing you along, encouraging you. I know this is difficult. I know you don't really want to work part-time at Victoria's Secret, but if that's what it takes to be able to stay into, in this industry, you've got to do it. And if you don't have those two things together, if I didn't have those two things together, I don't know that I would have been able to stick with it. How did you luck out and find a mentor at age 17? I find so many people will tell you that there were false prophets or false gods they encountered early on. It's not easy. Some of it, I think, is a two-way street. You can't be a mentee of anyone unless you're willing to be a resource to them and you're willing to mentor other people. And and so for me, I always believe in paying it forward and, and things come full circle. And and I tell students this all the time when, when, I, when I speak at schools and whatnot, you're thinking about who can help you get to where you are. I guarantee you there are five college, high school students who want to be in your chair. Oh, you're an entry level producer and that sounds great and I want to help you get there. I guarantee you there are 10 people in college who want to get into your chair. So if you have also just that that service, that that spirit of service, and you're willing to give back. I did, I truly believe the universe will reward you. If you are pouring into other people, people will pour into you. Tell me about the call up to MSNBC. Yvette Miley is someone we have in yeah. common, and I think she, there's a, there's a sign, I grew up in Miami. I'm a Miami kid, child of the 80s there, and you have Jose Diaz Ballard and yeah. Yvette Miley, and a bunch of people who came up to the old WTVJ system. How did she find you and how did she encourage you? She found me because we were meant to be. So I, I met Yvette when I was working at the Weather Channel. And at the time, NBC was a partial owner of the Weather Channel. And as she will say, she saw something in me that maybe I didn't see at the time. And uh, she's, she's the one who, who called me up for that first job. I moved to New York with two kids in tow. And again, there were moments where I was like, I, like, is this the right thing? Do I think I can do this? And she, you know, she, her attitude is always, well, again, why can't you do it? And every career move that I've made since then, Yvette has had in some way either been, she's either pushed me directly. She's either kicked me in the butt. She's either said, if you're reaching for this star, go for the one above that. And she's just always been that constant. I said to her the other day, I don't know why you have other friends or talk to other people. You're not just waiting for me to call you for advice all day because that's how I would like this to work because I just, I depend on her, even if it's just for um, positive encouragement. And and when you look at someone like that, who's done so much in her career and she sees the, the opportunity for you to soar as well, you know, that that's a, not only a relationship that I want to pour into, but it's also the motivation to be the event for someone else. It's interesting to me how you bifurcate your time. You are kind of a, you know, I bring it back to market concepts. There's all there's a portfolio theory and diversification in what you are doing at MSNBC. If you look at a Rachel Maddow, a Joy Reid, a Katie Fong, if you look at Jose Diaz-Balart and the the multitude of person, you know, 
Ali Velshi, all these other people there say in business circles, they say the best risk adjusted return you could get is the best possible diversification on the efficient frontier. I guess I'm being jargony, but you really take that to heart with DEI that you get a true uh, big sample of impressions. And in terms of news gathering, it just makes a lot of sense. And then part two is you go and you want to give back. You actually actively participate at NBCU in Hampton University. I can't imagine how many unsolicited emails you get from lost, you know, prospective journalists. <laughs> I, you know, I, I create a very direct one, two-way uh, relationship with students of many universities. We just hosted some students from Morgan State and Howard University, there we go, at our, um, at our um, office in DC two weeks ago. And, you know, we, we did a big program with NBC Universal and we had thousands of, or NBC New Academy, and we had thousands of participants, but we had about 50 students in the room. And before the big program started, again, Yvette, myself, a couple of other people, we went and shook each one of those students' hands. And what, what is your career goal? And what do you want to do? I actually met a student here um, today. She's also a soar. And, and my first question was, uh, what's your major? What do you want to do? Like, that is something that I think as a, um, as a leader, we have a responsibility to do. We have a responsibility to pour um, into students, pour into the future. If we want this industry to be as strong as it can be in five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, we've got to help cultivate um, that pool of, of the next generation of leaders. And so I think between that and then just... Um, not only do we want strong leaders, but we want to make sure those leaders are representative of the world we live in. The world is increasingly diverse. The world is, in, and, and diversity means a lot of things, geographical, race, gender, you know, all of these categories. I find that our content is better. Our programming is better. when we've got a broad representation of people who are making decisions and bringing that information to you. And and I, I, beyond it being a good thing, it's it's good for business. Can you tell us about the courtship of um, Jen Psaki? former White House folks. Yeah. I mean, that you know that that was sunsetting. Where was that meeting held? Do you show up in <laughs> D.C.? Is there, what's the trade craft to kind of poaching someone or even an Ana Cabrera? I can't give you my whole playbook. But you've got to, you know, I would have, this is full disclosure and I would have asked you where Yvette, how she reached out, where that meeting was. I could tell you where the first people who gave me time of day in magazine journalism at the Judson Grill by Rockefeller Center, I could tell you what I was eating because, and this is so pungent in terms of what you talked about, is that moment that I realized somebody cared and I can. And in terms of the, the transcendence and the transubstantiation of that, you are really passing that on. You're actively passing that on. So where does this happen? I, you know, I think for, for everyone you mentioned, Jen, Anna, others, I think the playbook is actually to not pitch, but to listen. What is it that you want to do, especially when you're making a pivot, like, like Jen Psaki or Simone Sanders, where you, you're doing one thing and you endeavor to do something different? What is what's the goal and what's the objective and 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 where do you see yourself and and where do you see yourself fitting into the fabric, and then it's taking that and figuring out in our ecosystem how is that a value add for both of us and sometimes it also requires taking calculated risk. Jen, for example, and, and Simone also, they are used to speaking in front of large groups of people. It was jarring to Jen to go from speaking in front of the White House press room with live voices and eyeballs and people and you can make contact to talking to a camera and there are words in the camera and like there isn't a room of people. And so you have to, in some ways, look around a corner and see what's possible and what, what that, what the person's potential is and how do you marry their passion, their skill set, their ability and their potential all into one place. And, and I think that's, what's worked for us is, and, and I think also in the, in a universe where we do so many different things, we're in the publishing, the digital publishing business, we're in the television business. This is a place where you can come and, and contribute in all of those areas. 
And I think that's a value proposition that's unique to us at, at MSNBC. Well, Rashid, in the few minutes we have left, I'd love for you to kind of close us out. I know this sounds cliche, but I think about it a lot. I'm 25 years removed from college graduation, and this is also a through line to a lot of the episodes and the people we have on. My high school teacher, Mr. Lutness, came by. He's now retired. He's my economics teacher in high school. He's always taken an interest in my life. He was always the one who would sit me down and hold my hand when I would have a freak out about transcripts or colleges and the like. Yeah. And when he came around several years ago, he's retired with his wife in an RV and they came through Ashland. And I had kind of like this Tootsie Roll owl meaning of life question for him. I was like, Mr. Notness, <laughs> what pray tell is normal? <laughs> what is normal? Was there a time in history where we didn't have war or inflation or recession or anything like that? And he didn't even blink. He said, normal was the year you graduated from college. Mm. It was your imprint of the world. It was mm -hmm. what the job market was like, the zeitgeist, what your classmates were doing, what was in the news, what was musical at that moment. And I know it's cliche, but I always love asking because it's so useful. What would you say to your 2002 self going back? Because you pulled off something that others really didn't, and it would have taken a much longer time. And you didn't have models. You didn't have really insiders in that business. And you did it in a much shorter period of time than would have been thought. 2002, Rashida, I would have said it's worth it. I would have said shoot higher, dream bigger. I would have said live in the moment. And I would have said pay it forward. And I think those are things that every single day I endeavor to do. But I would remind 2002, Rashida, that you were meant to do this. Rashida Jones, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs>